Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. On the evening of July 16th, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s single-engine Piper Saratoga crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, killing John, his wife Carolyn, and his sister-in-law Lauren. After a thorough investigation into the cause of the crash, the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that the crash was caused because the pilot, quote, failed to maintain control of the airplane as a result of spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation occurs when a pilot loses their reference to the ground. With no visible horizon, the pilot's inner ear and eyes begin fighting with each other. They give conflicting signals. Things happen such as they have the sensation that the plane is turning when they're actually flying straight and level, or that the plane is descending when actually they're still staying straight and level. Spatial disorientation is how we describe when what, what, what happens when what the pilot sees and what the pilot feels don't match up. So when a spatial disorientation is how we describe it when what the pilot sees or thinks they see and what the pilot feels don't match up. Now when I think about that kind of definition for spatial disorientation, I think there's a spiritual parallel. In our lives, there are moments where we are flying the plane that is our life. And what we believe about God and what we're experiencing in life all around us doesn't match up. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking a great deal about this kind of spiritual disorientation. But for us to ground that conversation in the Bible, I want us to start by returning to a passage that we actually looked at a few weeks ago. So will you please turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. Now, as you're turning there, let me remind you of what was happening to the people of Israel leading up to this passage. They have recently been delivered by God from Egypt, and now they're on the outskirts of the land of Canaan, the land God had promised them. And at the beginning of Numbers 13, God tells Moses, I want you to choose some men to go and explore the land and bring back a report to the people. So Moses chooses 12 spies representing the 12 tribes of Israel to find out what the nation will be facing when they go into Canaan. Now, before we read their report, I want you to keep in mind that all 12 of these men have the same background, more or less. Until recently, they've all been slaves in Egypt. And it isn't just them that have been slaves in Egypt. Their parents were slaves in Egypt. Their grandparents were slaves in Egypt. For generations, all the people of Israel has known is slavery. But of course, it wasn't always that way. If you read the second half of the book of Genesis, when the Israelites first went into Egypt, when Joseph was there, they were not slaves. Several hundred years earlier, before these events in Numbers 13, when the Israelites had come in, they were welcomed. They'd been given some of the best land in all of Egypt, and they grew and multiplied and prospered. But then, at the start of the book of Exodus, a new pharaoh comes to power. And this guy is afraid of the people of Israel, and he's afraid of their potential, of what they might become. And so he decides that he's going to enslave the people of Israel and put them to work for him. Now, again, we just need to really understand, because this is an important idea. It starts out in Egypt, where the people are welcomed, they're in some of the best land, and God's people are growing and prospering and multiplying as a nation. But then, a man who is afraid of them 
and afraid of their potential, decides that he wants to enslave them, that is the people he's afraid of, because he wants them to be afraid of him. Now, I think I'm going into some detail on that because I think that the relationship that Pharaoh had with the people of Israel, it actually gives us a kind of good analogy for the way our relationship works with Satan. I believe that our enemy knows of our potential in Christ. And so he's using some of the same strategies that the Pharaoh in Egypt used in an effort to prevent us from becoming all that God intends for us to be. As we read through the pages of scripture, I genuinely believe that all of hell is afraid of the power of the church of Jesus Christ. And so Satan and his minions are doing whatever they can to try to intimidate and confuse and discourage and frustrate the people of God so that we will not fulfill our potential as wholehearted followers of Jesus. Now, getting back to Numbers 13, what's interesting to me about this particular section is that it isn't just that the Israelites have a a long-term history where generations going back, they've been slaves in Egypt. They also have a very recent history. In the very recent history, they have seen a lot of big miracles that God has done, right? In the last year, maybe year and a half, they've seen the 10 plagues that God brought against Egypt. And then they were able to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then as they were journeying towards the promised land, God gave them manna and water from a rock so that they could have food and something to drink. And then he provided a cloud uh, by day, you know, and a fire, pillar of fire by night. And it isn't just that God was like, hey, I'm here. I want you to see me. I want you to just think about, don't you think that in the heat of an Arabian desert, it would be nice to have some cloud cover as you're just marching? Yeah, that, that would be good. And then when the temperature drops at night in the middle of the desert, the pillar of fire is very important then as well for heat. So the point is, these guys have seen a lot of miracles, it's they're all very impressive, but something that they all have in common is that basically in none of these miracles do the Israelite people have to do anything. Some of the miracles God just does on his own. Like manna coming from heaven, uh, it's just like God says, this is how I'm going to take care of you. He just does it. But then there are other miracles where God prompts Moses to do something. And then in response to what Moses does, God sends a miracle. Like God directs Moses to hold out his staff and the Red Sea parts. And then the people walk through on dry ground. So that was kind of the, the normal pattern is that God does something first or Moses does something first. And then the people reap the benefit. But the people almost, they've never had to go first. And that's going to be a distinction That will be important in just a moment. So let's now just read, starting in verse 26, the report from the 12 spies. It says, (coughs) excuse me. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with Caleb said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. 
All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. These words. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, those last words there in verse 33. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. I think in verse 33, we see the, that the Israelites experienced the first recorded case of what we might call grasshopper syndrome, which is a kind of spiritual disorientation. You see, the Israelites had experienced and personally witnessed all of those miracles that we mentioned before. So they knew the incredible power of God. But now they are facing a serious obstacle that is obscuring their vision of the, God, the land God has promised. It turns out there's giants in the promised land. But while the Israelites might have been the first recorded case of grasshopper syndrome, grasshopper syndrome is still alive and well today. Just like the Israelites, many of us see ourselves as nothing more than grasshoppers. And so we come to the same conclusion that they did. When we see giants in the land God has promised, we think, I know what happens if a giant and a grasshopper go to war with each other. It's not going to end well for the grasshopper. And so we retreat and pull back and don't enter into the land God has promised to give us. Now, if you've grown up in the church world like I have, I'll bet you've heard people teach on this particular passage. And I'm guessing that they said something like, the reason the Israelites didn't march into the promised land was because they were struggling with fear and unbelief. And I want you to know, I agree with that conclusion, but here's the thing. Normally, the implication of talking about the Israelites' fear and unbelief is that they didn't trust God to defeat the Canaanite army. But here's the thing, I don't think that's exactly right. The Israelites had experienced a lot of miracles, and they had just seen God defeat a much more powerful army than any of the Canaanite armies when God defeated the Egyptian army. So I don't think that they questioned whether or not God had the miraculous power needed to defeat the Canaanites. I think they questioned whether or not God was going to work his miracles through them. They had seen how God worked on his own, and they had seen how God had worked through Moses, but they didn't really believe that God would work through them. Ultimately, they believed in God, but they didn't believe in themselves. And that's the essence of grasshopper syndrome. The Israelites didn't see their true identity and their true potential. They were paralyzed with fear because of the way that they saw themselves. All they had ever been in the past was slaves. And so even though they were no longer slaves, even though they were no longer in Egypt, that's still how they thought about themselves. So they say things like, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. We are like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. These guys have been delivered from physical slavery in Egypt, but their mindset, their mentality was still in chains, was still in bondage. Now, at this point, I want to pause and give you a, make a distinction and give you a couple definitions that I think are very helpful. And I just want to credit these uh, definitions to a man, a pastor named by the name of Dan Sneed. And I, I was influenced by Dan as I was preparing this message. I want to give him uh, credit. He has a book on our identity that I, I thought was very powerful. But in, in that book, he explains that there is a significant difference between our identity and our self-image. So here's how he talks about it. Identity is about facts. 
Identity is about the reality of who you are and how God sees you. For the Israelites, their identity was that they were the people of God. They had been created in God's image and had a purpose and a destiny. That was a fact. That was how God saw them. So that was their identity. Your identity is how God sees you. Now, in contrast, self-image is not about facts. And it's not about how God sees you. Self-image is about feelings. Self-image is about how you see yourself or how you feel about yourself. And we often use the words identity and self-image almost interchangeably as if they are the same thing, but they are not the same thing. Again, identity is about facts and how God sees us, while self-image is about feelings and how we see ourselves. Well, let me give you an example of this. this is not a, like a particularly spiritual example, but let me talk about identity and self-image in my own life. So when I was 11 years old, my family moved to China. And when I went to this new school in China, it was a very, very small school. In fact, it was so small that they didn't have any sixth graders in the whole school. And so they were, I was going to go into sixth grade, and so they were going to have to like, create a whole class just for me. And so they decided, Annie is going to skip sixth grade, and we're going to put him in seventh grade. And so that means when I got into seventh grade, there were nine kids in seventh through 12th grade, right? Not, not a big school. And, and by moving up to seventh grade, one of the benefits was now I could be on the basketball team. I made the basketball team, but don't get too excited. There were only five boys in the whole school. We all made the basketball team. <laughs> and one girl made the basketball team. We had a very high participation rate in our school basketball team. Now, I had grown up, I, I had played some basketball, but I, I was a soccer player. That was what I was into. But we didn't even have enough people for a soccer team, so we're, we're playing basketball. But because our team was so small, most of our practices, we, we really couldn't, like, scrimmage against each other. We, we were playing with uh, adult men. We would have just men, other, like, missionaries in the community or business people would come to our practices or sometimes, like, a friend would, would just visit. And we would say, hey, come play with us. We, we need somebody to practice against. And so I grew up that year in seventh grade as a 12-year-old playing against men in their, like, 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, these were guys who were a lot taller than me, a lot stronger than me. They were all a lot better at basketball than I was. And so at the end of the year, if you had asked me, how I thought about my ability when it came to basketball, I would have said, I'm not very good, right? I, I, we, we, you know, I'm, I made the starting lineup, but I, I'm, I'm Ollie in this story, right? From Hoosiers, right? I, like, they kind of have to put me in the game. And, and so that's how I thought of myself. I just didn't think I was that great at basketball. But then the next year, my family moved to Beijing, to the capital city of China. And so I went to a much, much bigger school. And I heard that basketball tryouts were coming up in the fall. I had been there for, I don't know, about a month. And our PE teacher was also the basketball coach. And he was kind of publicizing this. And junior high students were allowed to play on the high school team. But I had no interest in signing up for that because my self-image of my, my ability as a basketball player was very low. I was like, I, I'm not very good at basketball. I, you know, this is a much bigger school. I'm not going to be able to make that team. I'm not even going to try out. But our basketball coach, as I said, was, already the, was also the PE teacher. And so leading up to that, he said, hey, we're going to play basketball in PE. So you guys need to choose up teams, and we're just going to play for about an hour. 
And so, you know how it's like in junior high, people are like, are you good at basketball? And I was like, no, I'm not good. They're like, you're an American. You should be good at basketball. I was like, well, I'm the exception. I'm I'm even from Indiana, and I'm not good at basketball. Soccer is kind of my thing. And they're like, okay, so I got, like, picked near the end. Now, my self-image was that I was very bad at basketball. But it turns out that when I was not playing against 20, 30, and 40-year-old men, I was pretty good. Like, when I was playing against other people my age and in my size, I, I was doing really well. And the basketball coach said, I want you to try out for the high school basketball team. And I said, no, I'm not good at basketball. And he said, no, I mean, you saw how this was. And I was like, well, coach, this is the thing. It's not really that I'm that good. It's just pretty clear they're pretty bad, right? Like, so, like, no offense, I'm not going to try out for the, the high school team. And he goes, no, you are going to try out for the team. He says, in fact, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to play tomorrow. You're going to play one-on-one with the starting point guard and the starting shooting guard on the basketball team. I'm going to invite everybody to come watch you because we're going to do it at lunch. Uh, everybody in the school can come and watch you play. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But, okay, so my, you know, my junior high uh, friends, they showed out, right? They were like, Andy is the junior high student going to play against these high school students. And it turned out that I won both games and I made it onto the high school team. And when I went back into the cafeteria, the junior high guys were like, Andy, Andy, Andy. Now, here's the thing. Nothing about my identity when it came to basketball, nothing about the facts of my ability had changed over the last like year and a half, right? I had a very, but what had changed a lot was my self-image. I thought I was terrible, but then I had this moment where I was being celebrated and I began to grow in confidence, right? My identity hadn't changed. The facts about my ability to play basketball had not changed. What had changed was my perspective on it. Psychologists tell us that you live your life out of how you see yourself. Again, this is a kind of description of grasshopper syndrome. If you see yourself as a failure, you will find a way to fail no matter how much you want to succeed. The Israelites were God's people. That was their identity. That was how God saw them. But their self-image, shaped by all those years of slavery in Egypt, their self-image was were grasshoppers, and that's how they saw themselves. This is, again, why I don't think the issue the Israelites struggled with was trusting that God had the power necessary to defeat the people of Canaan. I think they thought he could do it. I think the problem the Israelites struggled was trusting that God could use them to accomplish it. Prior to Numbers 13, God had always worked for the, with the people of Israel through Moses, Right? God would tell Moses to do something, Moses would do it, and then the people would reap the benefits. And we could say, well, why was Moses so different than all of them? I mean, he was an Israelite baby. He grew up in Egypt. Why why did he not struggle with this same problem of self-image? But we have to remember, Moses didn't grow up as a slave. He grew up as a prince of Egypt. And because he saw himself as a prince... It wasn't too hard for him to believe that God could use somebody like him. Yeah, he struggled. He's like, I can't talk. When he came to the burning bush, he was like, all these limitations, I can't do these things. But God was able to work through Moses because Moses had a different self-image than the rest of the people did. But now, God is saying, instead of me going first, 
Or instead of Moses going first, I want you guys to go first. I want you to cross the Jordan River, and I want you to go into battle with the Canaanites. And these people who had only ever seen themselves as slaves, who had never thought about having that kind of autonomy or agency or that kind of ability, they were like, we can't do it. Now, God understood that he was asking the Israelites to take a risk, but God wanted the Israelites to understand and to trust him that as his children, he could work through them, not just for them. God God could work through them, not just for them. See, when you're God's children, but you see yourself as a grasshopper, your identity and your self-image don't match up. And that's the kind of spiritual spatial disorientation I was talking about earlier. We know from reading this book who we are and what our identity is. But based on how things have gone in our lives, based on our past, based on our experiences, for many of us, we say, but I feel like a grasshopper. So what do I do when my feelings and my beliefs don't line up? What do I do with those conflicting signals? Well, I think airplane flight training or pilot training gives us a helpful analogy for understanding this. As I've been doing research for this sermon, and I I just want to say I've been talking to several of the pilots who are in our congregation, and I'm really indebted to them for all the time that they gave me to try to teach me about some of these things. But as I've been doing research for this message and for this series, I've learned that there are two sets of rules for flying any aircraft. There's VFR and IFR. VFR stands for visual flight rules. IFR stands for instrument flight rules. VFR is the way pilots fly when the weather is good. It requires that the visibility be at least three miles toward the horizon and also that a certain distance be maintained away from the clouds. In VFR, a pilot does have instruments on their uh, control panel that are telling them things like the altitude and the directional heading, but their main reference points are visual. When flying VFR, a pilot needs to be able to see the ground clearly, and then they need to be able to see around them. They need to be able to see the ground so that they can determine, you know, up and down and left and right, and they need to be able to see around them so that they can see if there's any obstacles, right? Like an other plane or a cell tower or power lines or, or something along those lines. So that's, <coughs> that's VFR. In contrast to VFR, IFR, again, instrument flight rules, the usual reference points that a pilot uses to stay oriented are gone. In IFR, the pilot can't see where he or she is going, at least not with their eyes, right? Their only way to be safe, though, in those conditions is to train themselves to keep their eyes fixed on their instruments, Spatial disorientation means that their senses and their feelings can lie to them. So their electronic instruments uh, are what they have to trust and believe in. These instruments include things like your attitude indicator, which shows an artificial horizon, as well as an altimeter, which gives the plane's altitude, and then an airspeed indicator, which shows how fast they're going. In a heavy fog, a pilot may not be able to see ahead of them that the ground is rapidly approaching or that there's a hill or a building But by trusting their instruments, a pilot can safely fly even in difficult conditions. 
Now, at the time of John F. Kennedy Jr.'s takeoff in 1999, the weather was fine and the visibility was normal. But as he flew along the Atlantic coast, he was gradually surrounded by fog, which obscured his visibility of landmarks in the horizon. And so his senses began to deceive him, causing to make some fatal decisions in maneuvering his aircraft. Sadly, the plane that JFK Jr. was flying did have the instrumentation he would have needed to operate in those kinds of conditions, but Kennedy was not trained to use it. He was only certified to fly VFR, not IFR, and as a result, he was susceptible to spatial disorientation, and it led to a fatal tragedy. I was told that when training new pilots, flight instructors tell them that when you find yourself in a place of spatial disorientation, you must rely on your instruments to tell you where your aircraft is in relation to your surroundings. You can't trust your feelings. You must trust your instruments. Let me say that again. You can't trust your feelings. You must trust your instruments. But of course, learning to place confidence in a plane's instrumentation more than one's own intuitive senses requires training and practice. Because when our mind senses potential danger, especially the kind of potential danger that could end our life, when everything in us is saying bank right, but the instruments are saying bank left, it's very difficult to trust the instruments. As one expert stated regarding the Kennedy crash, he wrote, you have to be well-trained to disregard what your brain is saying and fly by the instruments. Now, in many ways, I think that the principles of IFR and trusting your instruments rather than your feelings apply also to the Christian life. We're going to talk about this in more detail next week, but there are certainly moments, at least moments in my life, where I felt like I was flying in a kind of thick fog, and it was hard to tell what was up or down or left or right. My normal points of reference had become obscured, and I began to struggle. And when we're in a place like that, where we can't see clearly, we begin to have doubts and questions. We can confuse our identity and our self-image. We feel like grasshoppers instead of who we actually are as sons and daughters of God. Instead of trusting the facts regarding how God sees us, we trust our feelings and how we see ourselves. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Just because we have a positive self-image that doesn't mean we have a right kind of godly self-image. We're going to see that next week when we look at the example of Samson. But with that being said, having a low self-image, that isn't necessarily godly either. We want to be humble before God, but we can't allow ourselves to have false humility or even to hate ourselves. We were created in the image of God. Yes, we have fallen into sin. And yes, we cannot save ourselves. But we were still made in his image, and he still loves us enough that he was willing to send his son. That demonstrates how much value we truly possess. No matter what has happened in your past, no matter what you are going through right now, you need to know that God loves you, and he wants to call you his child. Here's the thing. How many times have I faltered in my faith, not because I overestimated myself, but because I underestimated what God could do through me? And when I underestimate what God can do through me, that's not humility. That's a lack of faith. And that's what grasshopper syndrome is. It's a lack of faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you and for me. This past week, I've been thinking a lot about 
a question that was asked to two brilliant Christian uh, theologians, I, I guess authors and, and, and theologians. The, the, the question is, what is the most important thing about you? Their answers were in conflict with each other, but I found them both to be very interesting. The, the, the first answer that I came across was A.W. Tozer, who was a brilliant pastor and author. He's written one of, he wrote one of the most famous and widely used devotionals in America today. It's called The Pursuit of God. Now, his answer to the question, what is the most important thing about you, is how you think about God. How you think about God. Or for, for our purposes, we could say how you see God, right? That's, that's what Tozer said. In contrast, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, many other well-known books. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he wrote, his answer to the question, the most, interesting, most important thing about you is how God sees you. So, so which is it? Is it how you see God or how God sees you? Now, now far be it from me to say that I can say which one of these legendary Christian authors is wrong, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm just me. But I, I do have to say, like, they, both of these answers are important for us to consider, and there's some implications in how we live our life. But I named my son after one of these guys. I named him after C.S. Lewis. And so I have to say I agree with C. Lewis on this matter. How God sees you is a big deal. And we need to remind ourselves of this truth on a regular basis. And that's why we make such a big deal about God time here at BRCC. We have to keep coming back to the Bible and reading it so that we can understand who God is and who he created us to be. Our God time in prayer and studying the Bible can function the same way as an airplane instrument panel does in the midst of bad weather. In a sense, when we spend time reading what God thinks and what God believes and what he wants us to know, we are training ourselves so that we can fly spiritually even when we can't make sense of what is going on around us. There are times in the Christian life where it feels like we're kind of flying with visual flight rules, right? It just, I see what's going on around me. I can kind of see what's going to happen. It makes sense. I understand it. And I feel good and comfortable and safe. And I can enjoy those kinds of times. But I also know that times are coming when things begin to close in around me. And I'm going to have to fly using instrument flight rules. And the question is, have I trained myself to trust my instruments, to trust God's word, even when what it says doesn't match up with my own feelings or my own desires. Now, as we think about this question, it's important for us to recognize that if we don't let God's word shape us and shape our identity and shape our self-image, we can be sure that our enemy is going to be bringing circumstances into our lives that are going to try to shape our sense of who we are and how we should think of ourselves. For instance, if you're a student, do you feel the need to define yourself by who you're dating or, or maybe the group that you're a part of? Is, are you defining yourself through social media and what other people are doing and how they look and their priorities, even if it doesn't feel sustainable to you? It doesn't always reflect your true priorities. As a husband... Have you been blinded by the ladder of success at the expense of your family? Or are you feeling crippled right now because maybe you don't have a job or the job that you do have brings you no real fulfillment? Or perhaps you're a woman who used to be in the workforce and you found your fulfillment and praise in your job, but now you find yourself 
tirelessly working at home. Maybe you have unappreciative children or even an unappreciative husband and you have very little to show for it. Where are you finding your self-image? What's shaping you? Or maybe you're in a season where you're an empty nester and you're not sure of who you are anymore without a house full of people to take care of. Do you compare yourself to the mom next door or the dad next door who seems to be super mom or super dad and you just feel like, man, I just can't measure up. I don't seem, I can't do it as well as they're doing it. Do you feel a sense of frustration and exhaustion? Do you feel unworthy because you don't measure up to your parents' expectations? Or maybe your boss's expectations or some other significant influence in your life. You just feel like it's never quite good enough for them. And how does that make you feel? Do you feel the need to hide your struggle with anxiety? To present a certain kind of image that isn't always true in your life? As we think about these kinds of questions, I want you to remember, our enemy wants us to lose sight of our true identity in Christ. Pharaoh was afraid of the Israelites, and it was because he was afraid of them and afraid of their potential that he decided to try to enslave them so that they would be afraid of him. Satan is working off that same playbook when it comes to you and me. He wants us to become slaves to sin and miss out on our true potential to change the world for the kingdom of God. As we are flying through the Christian life, if we're going to overcome our natural tendency towards falling victim to grasshopper syndrome, we must use the instrument panel that God has given us. This includes things like prayer and Christian community, sharing our faith with those around us. But I believe that the most important resource that God has given us is his Holy Spirit, which allows us to understand his word. This is why we have to keep coming back to the Bible so that we can remind ourselves of who God is and who he says we are. Because it's only God who can remind us of our true identity. I want to end the service today by sharing something that Max Lucado wrote that he titled, A Letter from God. What Max did was he took a bunch of different Bible passages and verses and put them together into a kind of letter from God to us. My friend Bruce Lippold is going to read that letter to us, and then we're going to sing our closing song. As you leave today, at each of the doors, there's a little table, and you can find that letter from God on a piece of paper. And I would encourage you to take that, not just so that you can see that letter, and it's a beautiful thing, but on the backside of the letter from God, it's got references for all the Bible verses where you can find each line that Max has used in his letter from God. And that could be a really great resource for you doing your own God times in the coming week or in the coming days. Here's the thing. You just have to remember your true identity and allow God and God's word to shape your self-image. Because in the end, you are not a grasshopper. You are a child of the one true God. I am the one who comforts you. I bought you and complete you. I delight in you and claim you as my own, rejoicing over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. I will never fail you or forsake you. You are worried and troubled about many things. Trust me with all your heart. 
I know how to rescue godly people from their trials. Let me strengthen you with my glorious power. I did not spare my son, but gave him up for you. Won't I give you everything else? When you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up and the flames will not consume you. So don't worry. I never tire or sleep. I stand beside you. The angel of the Lord encamps around you. I hide you in the shelter of my presence. I will go ahead of you directing your steps and delighting in every detail of your life. If you stumble, you will not fall for I hold you by the hand. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will make you fruitful in the land of suffering, trading beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for despair. I live with the low spirited and spirit crushed. I put a new spirit in you and will get you on your feet again. Weeping may go on all night, but joy comes in the morning. And if I am for you, who can be against you? I hear you sometimes say or think, the Lord has deserted me. The Lord has forgotten me. But can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for a child she has born? Even if that were possible, I would never forget you. I paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, my sinless, spotless lamb. No one no one will snatch you. I've written your name on my hand. I call you my friend. The very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are valuable to me. So give me your burdens and I will take care of you. Your maker and your father, God. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.